But Genesis chapter 17, beginning in verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face. And God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant Covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house Or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might, be, might live before you. God said, No. But Sarah, your wife, will, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house. And he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, 
those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner or circumcised with him. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, you know I have asked you for your help in understanding this passage. And I thank you, Lord, that you have revealed in your word through your apostles how we are to understand this passage. And I thank you for answering my prayer. I pray again this morning that you would help us as a church to understand all of these things, that we would understand your appearance to Abraham and your speaking to Abraham and the command that you gave to him. And why it can't be Ishmael and why it must be Isaac. And Lord, in that, show us, show us, Lord, that our salvation does not come from our own work, but from your miraculous and powerful working. In Christ's name, help us. Amen. Well, within the history of the church, not just our church, but church, the church forever, within the history of the church, there is this great debate amongst Christians, and the debate comes out of this question. Is God's covenant with Abraham conditional or unconditional? Or put it another way, does God fulfilling his promises to Abraham depend on Abraham's cooperation with God? Or do God's promises depend only upon God's efforts? And the reason for that debate lies in verse 2 of our text this morning. Look again at verse 2 with me. The Lord appeared to Abraham, or Abram at this time. We're almost to the point where we can say Abraham. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said to Abram, <laughs> said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Now, Abram, walking before God blamelessly, pretty well sounds like a condition upon which God will confirm his covenant with Abram and multiply him greatly, doesn't it? Do you see that in the text? That I may. I mean, if I told you, bring me some eggs, that I may bake a cake, we'd all know that the cake that I want to bake is contingent, contingent upon you bringing me those eggs, expensive as they may be. Likewise, it appears here in this text that when God says, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between you and me, that sounds conditional. It sounds like a condition of the covenant. And here's what we're going to see today. It is. It is conditional. But by the mercy of God, Abram's salvation isn't conditional upon Abram's blamelessness. It is conditional upon Christ's. And by the mercy of God, your salvation and my salvation is not conditional upon my blamelessness or your blamelessness or Abraham's, but upon Christ's. So how do we get there from here? Well, first off, we need to step back and look at the big picture of Abraham's story so far. 
All right, so, so if we go way back to Genesis chapter 12, if you remember, God called Abram, and, and at that time of the call, Abram was a pagan. He didn't know the Lord. He was worshiping some other moon god out in Babylon. But despite Abram's unworthiness, God called this unrighteous pagan out of his homeland and made seven wonderful promises to him, all having to do with blessing and land and protection and offspring. All Abram had to do then to secure those promises was leave his homeland. And he did, but we later discovered in chapter 15, God did that part too. God is the one who brought Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans. So even though Abram did the walking, God did the bringing. Not long after Abram is brought into the land of promise, here we're still in chapter 12, there's trouble in the land. If you remember, there was a severe famine. And because of the famine, Abram begins to doubt God's promises to protect him. And so he comes up with his own plan of protection. He's going to go down to Egypt. He's going to lie. He's going to scheme. He's going to sell his wife to Pharaoh. But God, despite Abram's unbelief and sin, God rescues Abram and Sarai by sending plagues to Pharaoh. Those plagues fulfilled God's promise to curse the one who dishonored Abram. And then Abram and Sarai leave Egypt with untold riches. So through Abram's sin, God fulfilled the promise to bless Abram. Already we're seeing, as we've been reading this story of Abram, At the very introduction of the story, God is the one fulfilling the promises. Abram's just being a sinner. In chapter 13, we go on. They come up out of Egypt. Abram repents of his sin, his foolishness. He returns to worshiping the Lord, and he begins to trust in the Lord again. Sounds like my life. Sounds like your life, doesn't it? And and, and that is evidenced in this episode, this trust, this new trust, this newfound trust that he has is evidenced when this dispute arises between Lot's guys and Abram's guys. And uh, Lot settles in the cities built by man, and Abram is, is, is uh, content to live on the land, looking forward to God's promises. Well, in response to Abram's faith, God reveals more of the promise to him. All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever, and your offspring will be as many of the dust of the earth. So we're seeing... Uh, a, more promises coming out of this relationship between God and Abraham. Well, next chapter, there's another great trial in the form of the the Babylonian invasion in the land, and that nephew, Lot, is kidnapped, and he's taken away. And this time, Abram doesn't scheme, he doesn't lie, he trusts in the Lord, and he fulfills the role of God's Redeemer. He's the strong and faithful one whom God works through to, to rescue the captives. And he comes back into the land, Again, out of the land, into the land, out of the land, back into the land again, again with untold riches, and he gives a tenth to the Lord, and then unloads the rest so that only God will get the glory. And that very night, God again expands upon his promises to Abram. He's going to make Abram's offspring as many as the stars. He's going to secure them in the land. And then, in what is perhaps the most foundational verse in all the Old Testament, perhaps the whole Bible, The Spirit teaches us, Abram believed God, and God counted it to him as righteousness. Then there's that covenant-cutting ceremony where God walks through alone. And that was a picture of, of, of God swearing that he would fulfill his promises to Abram, even if that meant dying. And then what happens? Well, 10 years pass, 
And Moses doesn't tell us what happens in those 10 years. But after those 10 years, Abram and Sarai become impatient with God. Sarai sins. Abram sins. Even the servant Hagar girl, is she's led into sin. Abram failed to believe that God would fulfill his promise to bring a child. So Abram strives in his own flesh, in his own power. According to worldly principles, Abram attempts to bring about the offspring that God had promised to bring him. This is after, mind you, in the order of Genesis, this is after God swore he would do it. Even if that meant his own death. Well, God responds to Abram's sin, his failure to believe the promise, by showing him mercy. He doesn't exile Abram. He doesn't start over with a new one, a new new Adam. God has sworn himself to Abram. He's committed himself to Abram. And God has done that knowing that Abram is a sinner. God's not through with Abram. And all of that brought us to the end of chapter 16, five chapters into the Abram saga. And that's what brings us to verse 1 of our text, which for timeline's sake is another 13 years later. If you've noticed what Moses is doing here, he's not giving us all the details. He's giving us the things that we need to know about the story. Thirteen years later, look down at verse 1. Abram's now 99 years old. Look at how Moses front loads that information for us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Now we understand this verse in light of everything that's happened so far. Chapter 17 does not stand alone. Don't try to make it stand alone. It comes in the middle of Abram's story. Two times, Abram has tried to secure the promises of God by his own strength through his own sinful flesh, and twice he has failed. And so the first thing that we're told here, Abram is now 99, which Apostle Paul tells us means he's as good as dead. And so look how God reveals himself to Abram. I am El Shaddai, that is God Almighty is how all of our Bibles translate it. That name means I am God, the all-powerful one. God is saying to Abram with this name, I can do anything, and I'm going to fulfill my promises to you in such a way that no one will be able to take credit for my work. No one will be able to say Abram fulfilled God's promises by his own flesh. When I fulfill my promises to you, All of creation will know only God Almighty could have done that. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Abram Abram's tried to achieve in his own power what God has promised to bring about by his power. And what we, the readers of Genesis, have observed is that in each of these failures, Abram's discovered he's powerless and he's a sinner. And so it's at this point, 99 years into Abram's life, I thank God that he saved me before I was 99, but Abram is 99 now, and God reveals to him, I alone am the Almighty One. I alone am am the Almighty One. Trust in me and not yourself. Trust in my works and not your flesh. Have you been at this point before? in your life 
when God revealed to you just how helpless you are, how powerless you are. It's an awful feeling, isn't it? But listen, that is the very best place to be. Dreadfully miserable and failing in your efforts. That is the place you need to be. When when you have been brought to this level of of humility, or what Jesus calls meekness, this is where God's power is most clearly understood. This, This is where we must be in order that we can know that God is the Almighty One who accomplishes His divine purposes in our lives. This revelation from God will come to you, and it will come in different forms for each of you. It may be that you are fighting sin in your life, in your own power. You know that some habitual sin of yours is destructive. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. But you may know that some habitual sin is destructive, whether that is is anger that's destroying your relationships, or pornography, or drunkenness. And in your own power, you, you externally might be able to sin less. Set up these different mechanisms in your life to sin less. But internally, your heart's unchanged. When we fight according to our own power, we just replace our old sins with new sins. That's what happens when you don't have a change of heart. We, we become self-righteous or we become deceitful and sneaky and better at hiding what it is that is going on in our hearts. What we need is a new heart, isn't it? That's something that only God in his almighty, all-powerful self can give us. And when he reveals that to you, it's going to hurt. It will hurt. It will be a humbling experience for you. But it is the best thing that can happen to you. Or it could be on the other side of that same coin. You're working and working and working to secure God's promises, like Abraham here. Maybe for you it's not so much an avoidance of habitual sin, but an accomplishment of the good. You're working, striving in your, in your own power to do good things, to be a good person. You're working and striving. You're sharing the gospel. You're going to church. You're budgeting. You're giving your tithes. You're volunteering in the church. All that so, so, so you can, in your own power, seize the good life from God. Take it from heaven into your own hands. You will come to the realization in those efforts, you are not as strong as you think you are. And when God reveals that to you, that he is the almighty one, it will hurt your pride like nothing you've ever experienced. It will bring you to your knees, or as we see in Abram's case, on your face. But that experience will be a freeing revelation, a life-giving realization that ultimately brings you true joy. So God appears to Abram, says, I'm God Almighty, amen. And then he commands him, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and multiply you greatly. God is giving Abram the conditions of his covenant. And by covenant, God God means the way that you and I will relate to one another. These are the terms of the relationship. 
God is saying to be in a relationship with me, you must walk before me. That means you must be my perfect representative. You will be the one to show all of the world, all of creation, what I'm like. And to do that, you've got to be blameless. And here we have a massive problem, don't we? At this point in Abram's story, we all know he ain't blameless. We know Abram's a sinner. God knows Abram's a sinner. Abram knows Abram's a sinner. And that explains what happens in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Then Abram fell on his face. Abram knows that he is before a holy God, God of creation, God above gods, God of all power. He's before a holy God. He knows that he cannot uphold his end of this bargain. And so what does he do? He falls on his face. He bows before God, prostrate before God as a physical sign of his helplessness, his powerlessness. This, this face-to-the-ground posture is Abram saying with the tax collector that we read about, God, be merciful to me, sinner. I can't be blameless. I'm not blameless. Be merciful to me. And God, who is rich in mercy, is merciful to Abram. Look at God's response. And and notice how this is assurance. Look at verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you. What had he said in verse 2? Be blameless so that I can make my covenant with you. It's a contingent. It's a possibility. It's something that might happen. And here he's saying it is. My covenant is with you. Present tense. He's reassuring Abraham of his promises. This is, this is why we arrange our worship service the way that we do. And it's not something we came up with. It's something that Christians long, long, long ago came up with. We need this weekly in our hearts. To hear and sing that God is almighty. To know of his mighty works. And then we respond in humility and in confession and a plea for mercy. And God responds through his word by giving us gospel assurance. It's what we see in this text. It's what we do every Sunday. We see more of that assurance from God in verse 2. You shall be the father of a multitude of nations. And that shall is not conditional if you are blameless. Do you see any ifs there? No. This is by God's fiat, by his declaration. And if we've learned anything in Genesis, what God declares, he does, because he's all-powerful creator. And to make sure that Abram knows that these promises will be according to God's work, God renames Abram. It's a very peculiar thing that we've never seen in the Bible before. Look at verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made, past tense, it already happened in God's foreknowledge, in, his, in God's plan, in his eternal plan, God has already made Abraham, Abraham. He's already made Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. God names Abram, Abraham to show that he is the father, that, that God is the father of him. He's the, it's what dads do, isn't it? We name our sons what god is doing for abraham i'm your father i'm naming you a new name i'm the one with the authority over your life i will work through 
you, my covenant son, to bring about the fulfillment of my promises. And the name is important. The name Abraham means father of many nations. So God would not, we know who God is at this point in Genesis. God would not, he cannot, can't name someone this and then fail to bring it to fruition. This is who God is. His word doesn't come back void. All of these promises that he's making will come to fruition. That's what the rest of the Bible is about. This chapter projects us into the rest of Scripture. Likewise, for you and for me, when the Lord adopted us into his family, when he gave us his spirit and he caused us to be born again, he will not fail to see our salvation through to the end. He didn't rename Abraham and then fail to make many nations, us, out of him. Likewise, he will not rename you as one who is in Christ and then fail to see your salvation through. His promises will be fulfilled in you. He's adopted you. Before we get to our salvation, though, in the the grand story of redemption, we have a little bit more work to do with Abraham. Look at verse 7. God is still speaking here. This is most of chapter 17 is God speaking. Verse 7, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you. God is promising that his relationship with Abraham will be ongoing. It's not going to stop with him. It will be through Abraham and then through his son and then his son's sons and his son's son's sons and so on. Throughout their generations forever for an everlasting covenant. And the key component of this covenant is there in verse 7. I will be God to you and to your offspring after you. That is, I'm entering into your family, this nation of people, and I will be their God. They will be my people. It's something that we see repeated throughout the Scripture. We saw in Exodus today. You see it in the, in the prophets. You see it in the minor prophets. It's again and again. God is God of his people. That's what he's promising here. This is a promise that God will, will bring his people into the eternal kingdom. That, that land promise that in, uh, your offspring will inherit the land as an everlasting possession, that is looking forward to something everlasting, which is not Israel as it currently is, but the eternal kingdom. What Jesus will tell us, he will describe this as the kingdom of heaven. Right? So when we read about the kingdom of heaven in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is what he's talking about. This promise here. God is bringing that kingdom to Abram and his offspring, and God will dwell with them there in that kingdom forever. So that's new promises, the, the covenant that is secure in the Lord. So here's the tension in what God has told Abram. He first said blamelessness is required for all of this to take place, didn't he? Clear as day, he said it. And at the same time, he has said he's already begun to fulfill these great and wonderful promises in Abraham with no conditions. So to me, when I'm reading this, and I, and I, I think you're supposed to read it this way too, this appears incongruous, doesn't it? Which is it, God? Are you going to fulfill your promises to Abraham even though he's a sinner? Or is Abraham's sinfulness going to put an end to your plan? 
and stop that covenant and stop those promises. And this question, this tension, is what brings us to the next section of the passage. This brings us to the meaning and purpose of circumcision, which according to the mysteries of God is next in the text. So in verses 9 through 14, God explains to Abraham what he must do in order to participate in God's covenant promises. He had told him, you've got to be blameless, you've got to walk before me. And then he said, I'm going to fulfill the covenant. And now he moves on to this new ordinance or sacrament. He tells him what he must do. Abraham is to circumcise himself and his son Ishmael and all of his servants, no matter how it is that he came to be his servants. And from here on out, any male born into Abraham's household must be circumcised on the eighth day. Really interesting, seems arbitrary, doesn't it? Why the eighth day? Why not the seventh? Why not the ninth? Or the tenth? There's a reason for that. We'll get to it. What's going on here? Why is God commanding this? What looks to us to be a kind of strange thing. Let's just get that discomfort out into the room. (laughs) Right? Why is God commanding this? And I'll be honest, I did not understand this. It took me a lot of texting with other guys in the church and asking questions and bouncing ideas around. It took a lot of prayer, that feeling of helplessness where I don't understand something and I have to ask the Lord for help. It took that. It took careful reading of, of Paul's letters, Galatians, over and over again. Read Romans chapters 4 through 7 over and over again. Read Colossians. And I had to read Paul and I had to read commentaries on Genesis and commentaries on Paul to just start to get, wrap my mind around what's going on here. And here is what is happening. Here's the condensed version. Circumcision is the cutting off of flesh. God is saying to Abraham, by means of this sign of circumcision, yes, Abraham, on your face, you are a sinner. And your sinful flesh will always prevent you from walking blamelessly before me. On your own, you cannot participate in my promises. What must happen is that your flesh, your sin, must be cut off from you. That is the reality built into the sign. Now, does cutting off a little bit of skin actually cut Abraham's sin out of his heart? No, right? No, it does not. It cannot. Look at verse 11. Circumcision is a sign. Do you see that in verse 11? It will, shall be a sign. Signs are not the reality. Signs point forward to something else, to the reality. It is a sign pointing to the time when all of sinful flesh will be cut off. Only then, when all of sinful flesh is cut off, can we be truly blameless before God. Well, how do we do that? How can we cut off our own sin out of our lives? We can't. That's why we need a sign pointing to something else. In fact, the next phase of God's plan of redemption proved this fact. In the Exodus, 
God gave his people the law. Why? To prove to them, just as he has been proving to Abraham, that they cannot be blameless before God. Even with all the statutes, even with a perfect representation of God's righteousness. It's not a lack of information that makes us sinners, is it? It's our hearts. So so what happens when God gives his people that perfect law, their sinfulness only increases. Nobody's righteous. No one can be blameless before God, no matter how much you know about good and evil. No one, that is, except the offspring who is to come. No one is blameless. No one can be blameless except the offspring of Abraham who is promised. The promised offspring, the Messiah. He is the promised one who will perfectly walk before God. He is the one who will perfectly represent God to all of creation. He's the one who will be blameless all the way through to his heart. He's the one who will fulfill Abraham's side of the covenant with God. He will be blameless his entire life. And then he will undergo the final and ultimate circumcision, the cutting off of flesh. Jesus Christ, the blameless offspring of Abraham, took our sinful flesh to the cross. On the cross... Abraham's flesh, his sinfulness, and your flesh, your sinfulness, and my flesh, my sinfulness, all of that was crucified in Christ on the cross. You say, Dustin, you're making that up. I'm not making that up. Look at Colossians chapter 2. I'm going to give you time to turn there. I want you to see this with your eyes. If you're new here, if it's been a while since you've been here, there's no text on the screen. We have discovered that it is actually distracting. So we, we, we put the text in your hands. It's in the pew back. Turn to Colossians. So you've got Matthew, Mark. This is the second half of the Bible. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you've got Acts and Romans and First and Second Corinthians. And then G-E-P-C. C being Colossians. Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now remember, Abraham was called, so this is just me speaking about those two, first two verses, Abraham was called to walk before God, right, as God's representative in order to secure the covenant. That means he was called to be God's perfect image bearer. Paul says here, all of that fullness of deity, all that image bearing dwells bodily in Christ. So Christ is the one who walks before God. That's what we're seeing here. That's what we saw in the Gospels, proof of his perfection, Christ is the one who walks as the representative of God to the entire world into all of creation. Verse 10, you, Christians, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. That this filling language, Christ is filled with deity and you, if you are a disciple of Christ, you're filled with Christ. Do you see that connection there? By how? By the Spirit. That means if you are identified with Christ, then you too walk before God 
And you too represent God to the world because your fullness, the sum of who you are, your identity is in Christ. How's that possible? Because we have sinful flesh, right? How, how, how is it that we have God in us, Christ in us, the Spirit in us, if we are sinful? We have the same flesh that we were born with. We're just like Abraham. We're just like Adam. How can we be blameless before God? How can we be in union with the one who is God? Well, Paul tells us. Look at verse 11. In him, in Christ Jesus, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what is the circumcision of Christ? Because that seems to be some powerful thing, doesn't it? What is that? This circumcision of Christ is not referring to when Jesus was eight days old and he went to the temple and Simeon sang. The circumcision of Christ is referring to his ultimate cutting off of flesh, his death on the cross. When the sinful flesh, our sinful flesh, was cut off. Finally. So, When we are brought to faith in Christ by the Holy Spirit's power, by God's sovereign Holy Spirit coming into us, here's what happens. We identify with Christ's death, which is the cutting off of the flesh, the true circumcision, that ultimate circumcision that Abraham's circumcision was always pointing forward to. The sign was pointing toward to the reality. When we identify with Christ's Circumcision, the crucifixion, our body of sinful flesh is cut off. Or as Paul says, put off. And it only gets better. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him, the Christ died on the cross. That was his, his ultimate circumcision, the cutting off of flesh. He was buried. This is why we recite the Apostles' Creed. He was buried, having been buried with him. How are we buried with him? In baptism in which you also were raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So the sign of circumcision in Genesis chapter 17 was always pointing forward to the reality of the cross. At the cross, the offspring of Abraham died. And then he was buried. And then God raised him up. And so it is with us. When we identify with Christ's death, we are also buried and then raised to new life in him. As Christians, we show this reality through a new sign. Baptism. The old sign, circumcision, was performed by adult Israelites on baby Israelites, pointing forward to the time when the offspring of Abraham would undergo the true cutting off of the flesh that the little cutting off the flesh could never do. The new sign given to us by Jesus Christ points back to the cross. So we're on this side of the cross now. So we look back to the cross and the cutting off of the flesh that has been accomplished. And it's no longer a little bit anymore, is it? All of it. We die completely with Christ. We go all the way under the water. Why would you sprinkle We go under the water all the way to show that cutting off the full death, the full putting off of the flesh 
buried under the waters of judgment. And then we come up out of the water. Really thankful that we don't stay under the water. And that's a sign too. It's a sign that through faith, that's key, through faith in God's power to raise us up, we will be raised up. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry, look at verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses, like Abraham, flat on our faces with no power to accomplish anything. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. When was Abraham on his face before God as an uncircumcised man? God made him alive together with the Christ who is to come. He made us alive together with the Christ who has come, having forgiven all of our trespasses so that we can walk with him, right? We can't walk with him. We can't be blameless before him with all these trespasses. He's forgiven it all by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside where? At the cross. God made us alive together with him. That's referring to Christ's resurrection. Thank God. We're brought up out of the water. Just as Christ was raised from the dead. By faith, we are united to Christ's death. And by faith, we are united to Christ's resurrection. And when did Christ's resurrection occur? On Sunday, the eighth day. The first day of the week, according to the Jewish calendar, but the first day of the new creation, according to God. When Christ was raised from the grave, that marked the first day of Christ being enthroned on high as king. And since the kingdom is in Christ, those who are in Christ are truly dwelling in the promised kingdom with God. We are now dwelling in the promised kingdom with God already, but also not yet. The old flesh that we inherited from Adam in creation days one through seven has been cut off because Christ has come. The new life that we have in the new and better Adam of the new and better creation that begins on day eight, the first day of the resurrection, that new life has begun. So whenever Abraham or any Jew after Abraham circumcised their little boys on the eighth day, it was always pointing forward, always pointing forward to the day when our sinful flesh would be cut off at the cross and the new creation would begin in the promised offspring of Abraham at his resurrection. Isn't that beautiful? God's not arbitrary, is he? didn't just say oh they pull a number out of the hat and say the eighth day he had the end planned from the beginning and that offspring issue because that's the issue here that offspring issue and the way that offspring are brought into the world let the reader understand this is why the flesh of abraham's reproductive organ is cut and not say his earlobe or his pinky toe or some other Appendage, the ordinance of circumcision given by God signifies both the promise of the coming offspring and the cutting off of the flesh that is necessary to walk with God. And that leads us to the next section of our text, because who is this offspring going to be? In verses 15 through 21, God tells Abraham that the coming offspring is not Ishmael. We already knew that. (laughs) Ishmael as we have come to see, is the result of 
Abraham's efforts on his own to get the promises. And God has been telling us again and again, I'm bringing the promises through my power, not yours, and not mine, not me, and not Abraham's. God's going to do it his way. The coming offspring will be Isaac. This all begins in verse 15 with the changing of Sarai's name. Look at verse 15. God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Now, if you have Bible footnotes, you're looking down there, and you look at that, and Sarai means princess, and Sarah means princess. And you go, okay, what changed? Well, Sarai, the old name, refers to Sarai's royalty according to her ancestors. Sarah, the new name, her covenant name given to her by God, refers to her royalty according to her descendants. Right? So you have looking backwards at where she came from. You have looking forward to where what's coming from her, who rather is coming from her. And just as Abraham's naming indicates he's being adopted into God's family, so does Sarah's new name. Look at verse 16. He's, he's going to bless her too. God says, I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And what's Abraham's response? Look at verse 17. And this is fascinating. He falls on his face again. He's, uh, he needs to tie his sandals, doesn't he? He falls on his face again, just like he did in verse 3. Abraham's repeated action. Now, now we're reading this. From a great writer, Moses, inspired by the Spirit, shows us this repeated action. And so we as the reader are going, oh, I've seen that before. What happened last time? It means we're to see God's words here in verse 16 as a parallel to what he said in verse 1. Because both times, the, the reaction is the falling on the face. So you've got verse 1 and 2, and then verse 16. What's similar? God reveals he's almighty in verse 1. God shows what he's going to do by his almighty power in verse 16. You see that? I'm almighty. I'll do it my way. I'll do it the the way that brings glory to me. This is the plan. This is it. Verse 16. I'm going to bring a baby to you, old man, and your old wife. But there's a difference here in in the two reactions. In the first falling on his face, Abraham was worshiping God. He's acknowledging that that. He cannot be blameless before God Almighty. And in verse 17, he's falling on his face and he's laughing. He's laughing at the impossibility of what God Almighty will do. This, this idea, the very idea that God will bring the child of the promise through the 100-year-old man and his 90-year-old wife. He laughs. Next chapter. Sarai's going to laugh. She hears about it. A couple chapters later, Ishmael's going to laugh when he sees the kid. The very existence of this baby boy trips everybody up. You could even say, you could even say that what God is going to accomplish through his own power is foolishness to them. You seeing a little glimpse of the cross there? When, when the promised offspring comes, he will die in order to become king and bring the kingdom. That is foolishness. That's laughable to the world's sensibilities. That sort of thing just doesn't happen. Just like 
babies being born to 90-year-old ladies. This is often what happens when God reveals his plans to us, isn't it? We, we look at God's plans. We look at his word. We see the way that God says he's going to accomplish salvation. And we say, yeah, that's, your way's a joke. My way's better. We try to muscle through, white-knuckle it through our way. And we come up with all sorts of alternatives to the way. Worldly success. We're going to get success in this world and then we'll feel like we're there. We're going to get some crystals and we're going to feel like we're doing something special. We're going to invent religions and so on. Abraham tries this in verse 18. Oh God, that Ishmael might be before you. What's he saying? He's saying, I've already got a great alternative for you. Let it be Ishmael. And when he says, let Ishmael live before you, that's Abraham asking that Ishmael could be the offspring who walks before God in the land of promise. To which God says, no, it's not Ishmael. I'll take care of Ishmael because he's your son and I have promised to bless you and your offspring. He's your son. I'm going to take care of him. He's going to be mighty. uh, A nation will come from him. Twelve princes will come from him. He's going to have lots of kids. He, he gets the blessing, but he doesn't get the covenant. I'm the one who fulfills the covenant. Isaac, the son of promise, will be the son of the covenant. And Isaac, of course, means laughter. So from here on out, whenever Abram calls out, Isaac, 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 he's reminded, oh, this is the child of the promise. This is the one who comes through God Almighty's power and not my power. This is the one that I laughed about that God brought to fruition. Look what happens. God presents all of this to Abraham. And then he leaves. Genesis 17, verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. He ascended. He doesn't stick around to see what Abraham's going to do. He knows what Abraham's going to do. Through, through, through what God has told Abraham, Abraham now somehow knows blamelessness is required of me. The, the ultimate cutting off of the flesh will be accomplished in someone else. I don't have to die today. All Abram has to do in the meantime is put his faith in that one who is to come. And he's to show that faith by cutting off just a little bit of flesh. And all his 318 warriors and his kids and their kids. <laughs> who knows how many thousand people this is. It's a big deal. But it's not that big of a deal compared to the reward. So look what he does. Look at verse 26. That very day, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. And all the men of his house, those born in the house, those bought with money from a foreigner, all of them were circumcised with him. That very day, there's no delay in Abraham's obedience. Abraham's faith signified in circumcision in exchange for what? The removal of sin and eternity with the Lord in the new creation. Now, it, that's a great deal, isn't it? If you really believed that great exchange, who would say no to that? Who would say no to that if you believe it? And Abraham believes it and he obeys that very day. At the beginning of the day, Abram's on his face before God Almighty because he was asked to do something impossible. 
Now God has said, I'll do the impossible. And so Abraham willing and swiftly does the difficult thing that God asked him to do. It's difficult, but it's not impossible, right? So for you and me, this is even easier. When we are brought to our faces because of our sin and God's conviction of our sin, the Lord has given us one command, one simple command. By the faith that he has instilled in us, we are to repent of our sins and be baptized. Repentance is by faith. Baptism is the sign of our faith. You are saved by faith in Christ. You are secured for eternity by faith in Christ. You show that reality through baptism. Just as Abraham's circumcision was a sign of his faith in the coming offspring who would remove sin, our baptism is a sign of our faith in the offspring who, praise God, has come and removed our sin. So by the power of God working in you, repent of your dead works, repent of your striving to be accepted by God, and be baptized. Be baptized into Christ's work, the work that we celebrate and champion Every day we come into this room together. If you have not done that, if you haven't repented of your sins and been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection, let today be the beginning of that new life. Abraham believed, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham grieved, and the Lord said, I'll take care of it. And he obeyed God that very day. You also can obey God this very day. Amen? Amen. 